Previously on At The Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz. Is that your way of saying that you're not going to be at Awesome Con? <laughs> I, my Jar Jar Binks costume is at the dry cleaners. Oh, Arch, you got to update your references, man. I mean, come on. Hello, I'm Lou Katz. And now, <laughs> oh, ladies who? and gentlemen, yeah, exactly who? <laughs> no. The man who's been what? called a Washington institution. <laughs> really? And, and sometimes actually belongs in one. We pulled him out. Though for this special podcast, the one and only Arch Campbell. Thank you very much. And here with Lou Katz, the the institutional radio voice of DC for what almost fifty years? Yeah, close to it. A long, yeah. long time. Yeah. And you and I worked together on Wash FM. So yep. here we are uh, together again. Before we get started, this is a show about entertainment, Obviously, movies. Right. Did you see Saturday Night Live this I week? I did, with Adam yeah. Sandler, and oh I am so, so glad that I did see it. He was I great. Ta- you know, I've got it on my DVR that I just tape it, and, and every week, the next day or so, I just I look at news breaks and the opening thing, and, and there's nothing else that interests me. I watch the whole show. It's the best one they've done in years. It is. It is. It was actually fantastic. I mean, all of it was great. And the Opera Man, and oh. and, and then his then his uh, tribute to Chris Chris Farley. Yeah, yeah, sure is him. And I loved uh, the uh, the Sandler family reunion. <laughs> Made a lot of fun of himself. Right. I just I. It's it's the best one. It's like Saturday Night Live should be. Usually, to me, Saturday Night Live feels generic. Right. You know, and and I not- always keep hoping, Arch, for a really mm-hmm. funny skit. You know, and nine out of ten times they're not all that funny. At least in my no, opinion, no, no, not anymore. But, Although a- anytime Keenan Thompson is in right. something, yeah, especially when, when, when he Steve does that, Harvey, <laughs> that's right. But uh, the, it was a great show. So well, that's good. And are you still watching Barry? Absolutely. A week ago, episode five. Did you see episode five? Yes. Well, I, that is the most outrageous piece of television I have seen in years where uh, Barry goes uh, not to kill the guy who's having an affair with the police right, guy right. who's figured out. And he's a Taekwondo expert, <laughs> the guy Barry goes to kill. And it turns into a Roadrunner cartoon. I know, and the, and the daughter... <laughs> The daughter the She's like a wild animal. I've never seen anything so wild in my life, and and I'm just I'm a big fan of Barry. Yeah, I can't wait till Sunday nights roll around. We got a lot of movies to talk about this week, including Detective Pikachu and uh, The Hustle with Rebel Wilson and Anne Hathaway, and uh, and I've invited one of my favorite guys to uh, talk movies with us. Do you know Jason Fraley? I have never met Jason, but I certainly know of him over at WTOP and admire his work and uh, a great he's, guy. He's now the entertainment editor. He started as a producer there, and uh, he's also an adjunct professor of film at American University. And he just got married. I went to his wedding he had the wildest wedding I've ever been to. We got to we got to ask him about that. Actually, we can do that right now, Arch. Jason, welcome to our podcast at the movies. Thanks so much for having me. It's always awesome talking to you, Arch. I'm glad you found a new podcast home. And Lou, nice to actually, uh, yeah, actually meet. I guess not in person, but close to it. Yeah, <laughs> and I great. just told our our listeners, both of them, that you are a newlywed. 
and you had the wildest wedding I ever attended, including a prelude of movie theme songs before the wedding began. Yeah, we came out to Indiana Jones <laughs> in the church. The, the, the ring bearer came out to, and uh, and bridesmaid, or uh, what do you call it? Flower uh-huh. girls came yeah. out to Jurassic Park. Uh, the, par- the, the parents came into the Forrest Gump piano feather theme. Um, and my lovely bride came um, out to Unchained Melody from Ghost. And then we uh, exited to some Guns N' Roses. So it was all in there. But then you got to remember, we did it at the reception arch. We did a duet to A Star is Born. <laughs> <laughs> it was a movie lover's wedding. So I got to respect that. Hey, uh, this week, uh, openings include uh, Detective Pikachu with Ryan Reynolds. And I don't think it needs a review. Uh, There's so many. I went to the screening, and the fans were just screaming and yelling and jumping out of their seats. And it's it's funny enough, and I think will satisfy them. Uh, You went to see something called Wine Country? Yes, it's a new Netflix um, release uh, directed and starring... Uh, Amy Poehler, which you know mm. we all know and love from her and her Tina Fey, and then also Parks and Rec. I was faced with the dilemma this week, Arch. We had, you know, the we had the hustle, which was opening in theaters, uh, which I know you can talk about, right? Um, with Anne Hathaway, Rebel Wilson, but then we also on Netflix we had Wine Country coming out. You know, it, it's one more example of Netflix pushing their way into you know rivaling theater releases. They used to release these movies on like a maybe like a Wednesday, it wouldn't, uh-huh. you know, compete directly, but now they're going head to head with these Friday releases. Um, looking forward to see what you think of the hustle, but I thought wine country was pretty good. Um, I'd say our, fr- you know, our mixed to positive, we like that phrase mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it laugh out loud funny, but it, it was consistently amusing. It's, you have six women take a, a girl's trip out to Napa Valley wine country in California. Again, I, you know, I, it didn't make me laugh that hard, but I thought it, I thought it was some good character development. I noticed Anna Gasteyer is in it, and I always liked her, and she hasn't done much lately. Yeah, it's actually uh, Polar rounds up a lot of her uh, SNL. It's it's a basically all SNL cast. It's Amy Poehler. She plays sort of the type A itinerary planner. You know, you have to have everything planned. And then Anna Gasteyer, as you mentioned, she's there. She's, I guess, the workaholic, always on her phone. Then you get um, Maya Rudolph, also from SNL. Hilarious, you know, doing some drunken karaoke. And and then we get Rachel Dratch. She was awesome. Remember, she was the Debbie right. Downer. Wah, yeah. wah. She's there. She's the birthday girl. But I thought the show stealer was this woman named Paula Pell. She was a writer on SNL, but she's sort of the standout, almost like the Melissa McCarthy of the group here, the center of attention. And then Tina Fey shows up in a in a, a supporting role cameo as the the landlord, sort of this no filter, gruff landlord owner of the house that they go to. So she's always popping in in the background, along with Jason Schwartzman. It was decent, you know. I would, I definitely wouldn't say it's one of the laugh out loud funny things, like not like a Parks and Rec or something that you might expect. But it's one of those good mid-range comedies for a demographic that I don't think gets made that enough anymore. You know, like that mid, yeah, those middle-aged women demographic. You know, it's interesting. Uh, movies uh, starring women and empowering women seem to be very prevalent these days, and I think that uh, that made way for uh, the hustle with Rebel Wilson and Anne Hathaway. And to me, everybody wants to make the next bridesmaids. And the hustle is a remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was a remake of an earlier movie, 
And I even got a, a vibe of the Lady Eve from Anne Hathaway in this remake of a remake. And and because this story, you know, they're con artists and they're on the French Riviera and things keep switching and the cons uh, switch cons and the cons con each other. Uh, it's like the cons film festival. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's good enough. They kind of play it safe. They, uh, you know, they reverse the roles of Michael Caine and Steve Martin for um, Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. But it's also, it's safe. There's nothing edgy or new like there was in Bridesmaid. So it's good enough. To me, it's uh, mixed. It's a couple of stars, uh, but not great. I love your Lady Eve reference. You know I love me some Barbara Stanwyck and some Preston Sturges, so I'm going to give you points for that, Arch. But Thank you. How, did, how, how would you compare it to Rebel Wilson's movie from earlier this year, The um, Isn't It Romantic? Remember they did the spoof, the send-up of the rom-com genre? She, You know, she's sort of turning into the new version of Melissa McCarthy, and Melissa McCarthy had trouble maintaining that character, and I think Rebel Wilson is in the same place. It, it's... It's almost time for her to do the next thing. So so I'm mixed on it. You know, you're talking about um, Netflix. I really like The Highwaymen. In fact, that's one of my favorite films this year because I am a Texan and I do know the Bonnie and Clyde Texas Rangers story. But I still, uh, The Highwaymen is something I recommend uh, heartily. I actually have that written down as my li- on my list of uh, you know a handful of movies that I've really enjoyed from this year so far, and yeah, I really like the Highwaymen too, Arch. I'm glad you said that because it got sort of you know mixed to positive reviews, but I re- I thought it was even better than that. Um, I, you know, I think maybe some listeners, if they you know maybe younger listeners have shorter attention spans, or they mm-hmm. were expecting the, you know the you know, flattened Scruggs, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, Banjo, High Speed, <laughs> <laughs> like like uh, Warm right. Fade yeah. Dunaway. And yes, you're never gonna you're never gonna match, you know, Arthur Penn. That was like some avant garde nineteen sixty seven Hollywood Renaissance stuff there yeah. with the violence and stuff they did with the cuts in that movie. But uh lots of sexual symbolism in that movie too, uh, in the way <laughs> when they first meet. I love I nineteen sixty seven Bonnie Clyde was one of the greatest movies. But the Highwayman I thought was a great um companion piece to it a little more patient but a lot of great character work between uh kevin costner and woody harrelson and i thought some of the dialogue exchanges especially with um clyde barrow's father i love yeah, that scene yeah i love that scene sort of about the the morality of of criminality and you know he says he wasn't always that way he just started off stealing a chicken and is that and then kevin costner says well do you think there was something evil inside of him that made him steal that chicken i i thought they i thought the dialogue was really nicely done in that so i'm with you on highwaymen so what are you looking forward to? We're getting into the summer season, and what are you looking forward to? Well, all year I, w- I had been saying I thought Us was my most you know anticipated movie of the year um, just because of Get Out. I, I, it was, it, I'm still thinking about it, but um, I do you know I don't I don't think it quite reaches reached that level. We can unpack that more in a little bit if you want. But in terms of the summer, I'm actually believe it or not. I'm I'm looking forward to what they do with um with the Lion King. I thought they those oh. um those live action remakes um have for the most part 
exceeded my expectations. Yeah, the Jungle Book was great. That was the best one of those, right. And this seems like it could be the closest to that in terms of it's the same director, John Favreau, and they're doing that, you know, bringing animals to life again, you know, unlike the Cinderella's and, you know, Sleeping Beauties and that kind of, uh, all that's Beauty and the Beast. But this, the animals seems like they're, they, they gives them a, an ability to maybe bring back some voices like um, James Earl Jones is coming back as Mufasa. And um, I don't know, The Lion King was my favorite. As a, as a kid growing up, I was about, um, what was I when that came out? <laughs> I was 10 when that came out. Um, Mufasa's death still uh, rocked me at that age. But um, but I'm, I, I am looking forward to see what they're doing. It. And they're going to have Donald Glover as, um, as Simba and I think Beyonce as Nala. And I don't know. We'll see. I think um, I have a feeling that could be one of the better ones of those of those Disney remakes, because I did not like Dumbo. What did you think of Dumbo? Nah, I didn't like Dumbo. I wasn't wild about that. You know, and there was another one, Long Shot, a couple of weeks ago with... Uh, yeah, Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Yeah, and uh, it starts great and just devolves into, uh, into uh, a piece of uh, junk. Really disappointing. I thought it was going to be one of those great political things, and it's just another variation of American Pie. Before we wrap up, can you explain the popularity of Game of Thrones to those of us who have not managed to get into it yet? Yes, it seems like your type of show, Arch. (laughs) No, I'm with you. I I originally didn't think it would be, you know, dragons and all that kind of thing. isn't Isn't typically my bag either. Usually, that fantasy drama or that genre. I. I typically, I love fantasies usually if they're more of a magical realism set on Earth, like, you know, Field of Dreams or a Groundhog Day or a Wonderful Life. You know, like, if the fantasy element's based in reality, that's more my bag usually. But these other worldly stuff, I'm usually not into. But that said, I finally gave this show a shot. I was a couple years late into it, I think. And um, it really hooked me. What, what hooked it for me is all of the different character development. You really, you really are rooting for all the different... Um, it's like political intrigue to see who's going to end up on the Iron Throne and who's, you know, what angle is this character working? Is is, is Cersei going to undercut this character? Is Tyrion going to work his way up? Is it a cross between Lord of the Rings and, uh, and you know, politics? House of Cards? Yes, definitely. Or, or you could say some of the Shakespearean stuff, Macbeth, or... I would almost say it's almost like Braveheart. I think I think the show has two audiences: those that like the medieval Braveheart kind of stuff, um, or those that like the the Lord of the Rings, you know, dragons and White Walker zombies and all that stuff. I'm actually glad that they've gotten over the the zombie White Walker stuff now. And now the final couple episodes here, it's left to deal with what the humans are going to do, who's going to end up on the throne. But to me, guys, Arch and Lou, this one is the the one show where anyone could go at any time. In season one, they, you know, they whacked a character that you did not think. Imagine like Tony Soprano getting whacked in season one or Don Draper falling off the skyscraper in season one of Mad Men, or if Walter White died in season one of Breaking Bad. The the audiences of this show were left, wait, what? Who's our main character? And it happened every season. People would get off. Um, I think now that they've outpaced outpaced the books that George R.R. Martin wrote at this point, um, so now it's just HBO and the you know the writers, the TV writers, figuring the fates of these characters in the final season or two here. Um, and I do think it's devolved a little in the storytelling, a little bit into 
fan fiction. Uh, we don't want to see some of our beloved characters dead. We want like an amazing number of them are still alive at this point because I think they want them around for the finale. Um, but at least for I'd say at least a good five, six seasons there, anyone could go at any time. So I guess that would be my appeal if you want to, you know, if you think you can overlook the dragons, give season one a shot because I don't think the dragons even come until season two. So you might give it a shot, Arch. But you're running out of time, man. The the finale's in like two weeks. Well, I, Jason, I will say this much about the only thing I really know about the Game of Thrones is a Starbucks coffee uh, cup that, that, was, that was in last last Sunday's show. To me, oh, that's the highlight because I, I haven't followed it. How did they, how did they miss? Yeah, what would you call that? A grande? Um... I would call that a grande screw up, unless they did it on unless they actually did it on purpose. If you think, oh, like a a product placement? Yeah, maybe. I think. Um, yeah, it's funny. So many people were compare, or complaining about how dark the lighting was in the previous episode. And I, when they, when I finally saw the uh, the Starbucks cup, I said, "Well, we don't want to see that much." <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jason, thanks for your time. Congratulations on your great movie lovers' wedding, which I will <laughs> never forget. And I hope you will uh, uh, come by and uh, be on this show more often. Uh, yeah, she's a wonderful. Uh, wife and it's a, a wonderful life so yeah I'll come back whenever you want that's Jason Fraley and he's uh, one of the really good guys in town lots of fun talking to him yeah I love his work over on T.O.P. hey coming up we're gonna talk to a critic who wants to defend showgirls remember showgirls oh yeah <laughs> and then we're gonna hear from one of Washington and America's favorite mystery writers I won't tell you who it'll be a mystery You're listening to At The Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz and a cast of thousands. Okay, Lou, I got a few shout-outs for us. Go for it. The uh, Jewish Film Festival runs through this month at the American Film Institute. Uh, and the uh, AFI docs get underway June 19th in Silver Spring. A couple cool things to check out for the weekend. I followed Susan Wazena's film reviews for years when she worked as the chief entertainment reporter for USA Today. In recent years, she has reviewed for Roger Ebert's At The Movies website. And now she writes for Gold Derby, the website that follows awards competitions, including the Oscars and the Emmys, throughout the years. And Susan, welcome to the program. Have you met Lou Katz? Well, vocally I have. (laughs) (laughs) And it's nice to vocally meet you, Susan. That's right. (laughs) It goes both ways. You uh, worked in entertainment for so many years, so there's several things I want to touch on with you. Continuing uh, the... uh, the process of the news of the death of John Singleton, one of the most important directors of recent years and uh, particularly remembered for Boys in the Hoods. Uh, Tell me about uh, John Singleton's impact. Well, you know, he opened many doors for other black filmmakers, and he also changed the way Hollywood perceives, you know, African-Americans in movies, because I think what he did with Boys in the Hood is he touched upon um, hip-hop culture, for one thing. Mm -hmm. And also, it was a time in 1991 when Rodney King was happening, all that, you know, protest, and also O.J., and it was just this kind of interesting moment in time for this movie to arrive, because it was about 
Lawrence Fishburne plays a very protective father. And, you know, I think a lot of times fathers in movies that portray black families, you know, tend to get a short trip as far as being responsible. And this was the opposite of that. And also it showed the different choices that males in, you know, that those kind of neighborhoods like South Central have. And you can either walk the, you know, do all the right things or you join a gang and, you know, things happen that maybe will, you know, not end well. He really but, was ahead of his time, yeah. I think, because uh, Boys in the Hood could play, uh, con- you know, now. Right. No, it could very much so. And I think, you know, it's sad that he died, but, you know, I think, you know, people will go back and look at this film because of the attention it's gotten. And it is a good reminder that maybe we haven't gotten as far as we thought sometimes. 51 years old, that's not enough. Yeah, no. I was interested he produced Hustle and Flow. Right. Which and created that moment at the Academy Awards which, when yeah. <laughs> it's hard out here for a pimp. I know. <laughs> <laughs> which won the best song award that it did. year. I don't think they had many songs that year. So. <laughs> but uh, it, it had a dance number, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> but uh, we should remember him. He's a, And, and I, you are correct. He certainly did mentor a lot of people. Yeah. No, after... It made it made like fifty eight million, I think, domestically, and you know that doesn't sound a lot now, but it was back then for this kind of film with an unknown mm. filmmaker. He also was the first um, black director ever be nominated for an Oscar, and the youngest at twenty four. So, you know, after him, the floodgates opened. I, I, you know, Spike Lee was a little different, old school kind of mm. filmmaker, even though he did add to the language of cinema in a different way. But I think he had the youth on his side more than, you know, Spike did. And I think, um, you know, now it's it's amazing to think only, you know, five more black directors have gotten Oscar mm. attention, and no one has won yet, you know. So it's still, there's ground to be, you know, made. But uh, I think John Singleton's, doing what he did and it was based on his own personal experience you feel that in most of his movies or some of that in there so yes but now we should say spike lee won a uh screenwriting award right well he was the first yeah because he's danced around it but uh yeah, someday but, he'll and get he it and he was finally uh, nominated for best director for black as well so I, yeah. I also I want to mention uh, Peter Mayhew yeah. who is not a household name until you say that he is the actor who played Chewbacca for yeah. all those years well reading about you know you know I always loved Chewbacca because he gave Han Solo a hard time and that he needed that <laughs> so, <laughs> he kept him righteous <laughs> But I think, you know, he, he was seven foot three, <laughs> but he was a, definitely a gentle giant. And the cool thing was he was, he did appear in the, um, as the character in The Force Awakens when they revived it in mm-hmm. 2015. But what he did was, which is so sweet and probably representative of who he was, he taught his uh, successor in the, you know, continuing films how to be Chewbacca. Mm. 
And I love, I mean, I don't know, maybe more than the droids. I, I, I think pretty much everybody loves Chewbacca. It's interesting. He married a woman from Texas. He's British. Right. And, uh, and moved to Texas. Right. I can imagine <laughs> a seven-foot-tall... Well, he's tall... a big guy. There's more room there than in England, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> now, speaking of room, you are part of an upcoming documentary on Showgirls. the is true. Uh, the infamous film that is now being uh, re-looked at uh, as possibly uh, an empowering film. And tell me about that. Well, it's interesting. I got a call out of the blue from this guy who said he was making a documentary on showgirls. And I, didn't, I wanted to tell him, you know, I was never a showgirl myself. But the reason why he called me was that back in the day, I wrote one of the few kinder reviews of the film uh-huh. because I remember just sitting there watching it with my colleague and Andy Seiler. We got our own screening from MGM. <laughs> and at a certain point when they were in the pool with the dolphins and they started squirting water, I just lost. And I go, okay, I get this film. But here's the thing. I mean, the women are so in charge in that film. Mm-hmm. The, the, the slams against it, I mean... It's over the top in a way that no other film, I think, has been over the top. But I think, you know, if you look at it again, uh, there's something going on there between the women because, for me, they're in charge. I mean, Vegas, people don't pay, you know, to see shows in Vegas for the men necessarily. There are the Chippendales and all that. But, you know, the women run the show, and without the women, you know, it's not going to happen. So, and it, 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 it's a campy and you know, kind of too much. But I mean, I love Gina Gershon especially. Oh yeah, in that. yeah. And so, you know, the, the documentary. I did see it. I mean, I I just talked a little bit about my um, review and all that. It's weird when you go back and have to read what you wrote. About. Uh, do you think that uh, a lot of men uh, knocked showgirls because we were embarrassed about the extent of the nudity? I mean, it was basically two hours of, of nude women. Yeah, a lot of nipple action. <laughs> but but here's the thing: it did on DVD, as happens with X-ray films on DVD. It did, you know, gangbusters. Okay, and so you might be right that people were afraid of it because really no film for ages tried to have an NC-17, and this did not do well in theaters initially. But now, you know, there are scholars of it. I mean, there are, you know, he quotes in the um, documentary a a book that says, it. it, you know, I think it doesn't suck or something. (laughs) But something like that. But, you know, and then there's like something like a Rocky Horror Picture Show thing where, you know, they perform, you know, a play of it. Oh, really? Yes, yes. No, it's a very, it's a more serious film than you you would believe. But I think it makes a pretty good case because I do like Paul Verhoeven films a whole lot because, he made fatal uh, attraction, uh, not right. fatal, uh, uh, basic, basic instinct. I mean, yeah, yeah, and 
I think um, he actually loves women, you know, and it look, doesn't look that way when he does Elizabeth Berkeley in this. And, but, and it didn't do much for her career. No, but, you know, she owns it because she showed up. She She's in the film, and she's talking to people about it. She knows what, you yeah. know, what was what. But I think... Um, Paul Verhoeven doesn't rarely makes women victims. They're usually not. They're the opposite. <laughs> they they create chaos some ways and all that, but they usually rule the world for in his universe. So I I don't mind that. Well, Susan, I miss you in USA Today. I especially remember the days of you and Mike Clark in that paper and your great reviews. And I've always admired your work. And I hope you will come back and talk to me and Lou Katz again. Lou is blushing, incidentally. <laughs> she, this... she said the N-word <laughs> about, about, about those women. Oh, my gosh. The, the B-word. <laughs> the B-word. Really? <laughs> so, well, go back and watch the movie again. It, it, and see it through different eyes <laughs> if you see the documentary. Uh, yeah, we're going to work on that. Thank you for talking to us. Susan Wazena. Asking me. Come back and talk to us again. I will. Arch and I are going to take a short break. Back in just a second with a mystery writer you're going to want to hear all about. You're listening to At the Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz and a cast of thousands. So, Lou, are you familiar with George Pelicanos? Yeah, nice guy. A mystery writer. You mm-hmm. read any of his novels? I don't know how to read, Arch. Don't, don't pressure me. <laughs> Uh, he's he's right here in D.C., and he's considered one of America's most beloved mystery guys. And most of the work he writes takes place in Washington, because this is his hometown. Uh, David Simon, you know who that is, mm-hmm. who uh, produced The Wire and wrote The Wire, he read one of Pelicanos' books and uh, invited him to uh, work on The Wire. And then he went on and worked on Treme. And uh, the current HBO series, The Deuce. Now George Pelicanos has put his stamp on a movie entitled DC Noir, which includes four stories of non-political Washington. There's a femme fatale and an old school cop and a couple of stories of drugs and death. I spoke with George Pelicanos after a screening of D.C. Noir at Filmfest D.C. I congratulate you because you made a movie about Washington and you did not show the White House, the mall, or any of the monuments. <laughs> yeah, we totally avoided that. Um, <laughs> and, and that's the point, isn't it? Yes, it is. We, we wanted to you know, shine a light on the city, the city that people don't see and, and mainly the people that... Um, are ignored usually in, in film and literature. Um, most of the most of the stories, obviously, that are in Washington are about the government or the Pentagon. And, um, having lived here my whole life, I, I recognize that you know people have been here for generations and they they're not impacted at all by that. They just go about their their lives. Yeah, there's an entire different community. I, to me, Washington is a series of little communities that are never downtown, they're never connected to government. That's right. And, you know, all the hysteria about the current administration that's nationwide, and I I think people here sort of shake it off. Uh You know, they know that that, that the wind's going to pass through, and and it will. 
and we'll still be here, you know, and, uh, you know, making it. Great cities, it seems to me, often attract a writer who loves that city and who wants to share his or her love with it to the rest of the world. And if you don't mind, I sort of view you that way with Washington. What is it about Washington that makes you love it? It's true. I, I spoke a little bit earlier with the Q&A tonight, but when I was working for my dad in the late 60s, 1968... At his diner? Yeah. CF Folks? It, it's CF Folks now, but it was called the Jefferson Coffee Shop when he had it. And where was that? On uh, 19th between M and N, right next mm-hmm. to the Palm. My job for him was to deliver food on foot around the city. He'd give me, you know, they'd put a bunch of brown paper bags in a yeah. big box, and I'd take off. And... What a time for a kid to be out. It was right after the riots. It was around DuPont Circle, so you had, uh-huh. the, you had the hippies. You had, it was a very exciting time in Washington for, for a boy to be walking around the streets. And I really fell in love with it and everything about it. But I always wondered why nobody really wrote about it and, and why it wasn't in the movies. You know, not the city that I saw or knew. Never showed up in in films. You wrote DC Noir a while ago, but now this film is out. When will we see this in wide release? I think we will probably try to make a streaming deal, which, believe it or not, is a win now. It's mm-hmm. it's oh, the place yeah. where yeah. Um, when you used to review um, independent films in Washington or foreign films like Godard mm-hmm. and Truffaut and all that, that isn't happening anymore. But it is happening on your TV screen at home. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, so I, you, you want to get, you want a lot of eyeballs. You want a lot of people to see your film. That's the way to do it. And I'm hoping to make that kind of deal. There's a feel of the wire mm-hmm. I found uh, in the film, in the casting and in the storytelling. Uh, so could this go on to a series? I think it could. Yeah, if we went around the country and did the various cities, and I would. I would get the writer, the crime writers who own those cities, who really are mm-hmm. uh, deeply embedded in, in those towns, and let them write the scripts, and then we'd go uh, shoot them. But the, the connection of the wire is that w- when David Simon read one of my books, he called me up and asked me to come join him on the wire. So the tone of this is similar because my books were always similar to what ended mm-hmm. up being on the mm-hmm. wire. And, of course, we had some actors here tonight that, you just, if you're familiar with yeah. the show, they they were in our film tonight as well. Yes, I'm am finally putting that together right now. And th- there was a question: uh, Why did you film it in color? And uh, when I watched, I read it as being in black and white. Well, because noir people think of black and uh-huh. white, but it, uh-huh. as you know, Arch, the, uh, the film noir when it was first, and, and you know, Americans didn't even know what film noir was. They were doing it. It took yeah. the French to tell us what it was. <laughs> but a lot of the reason it was black and white is because they didn't have the money to shoot in color. Right. And, and a lot of the reason that there were all those shadows in film noirs because they didn't have fill lights. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, it was accidental in a uh-huh. way. And uh-huh. then it became self-conscious, so you yeah. know that. Yeah. Um, but in the beginning, yeah. So uh, I would like to work in black and white someday. I think it's beautiful, man. You worked on The Wire, story of Baltimore, drug dealing and journalism and the mm-hmm. police and education. You worked on Treme, mm-hmm. New Orleans, after 
uh, the hurricane. Right. Uh, you're working on the deuce. Yep. Uh, New York uh, in transition. Yes. What would be the great uh, theme of of a DC-based series? My passion project that I fully intend to <laughs> to try to make is uh, based on my book, Harbor Revolution, which is about the 68 riots. Mm-hmm. That's the big mm-hmm. event in, uh, in Washington history that changed everything. And the way I would do it is it would be a working class, uh, a black working class family in D.C. who are caught up in this huge civil rights event and their struggle to, they're not, they're not people who are going to change history. So how do they, how do they um, adapt to everything? And, and I think I can... I've got the story in my head, and and that's the one I really want to tell. I can't wait. And uh, he is hoping for a streaming deal for this. Cool. So uh, that's where the money is. (laughs) No kidding. Hope it happens. What's on your mind right now, Arch? Hey, Lou, what is our email address? What's email? (laughs) Are we getting any emails from anybody? Uh, Yeah, from the bill collectors. We get a few. Got from from some Pepco and and, uh, Washington Gas. Our email address here with Hound Radio is arch at houndradio.com. Oh, arch at Hound Radio. And if you'd like to reach me, it's lou, L-O-O, at houndradio.com. How come it's L-O-O and not L-E-W? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can make a very long story very short. When when I was working at NBC back uh, in the mid-70s yeah. as a NABET engineer in the radio, local radio division, we had put some memo on the one of the elevators about some, uh, some I don't know, we were doing some party or something, and I, I had signed my name on it, and we just sort of taped it to the wall of the elevator. And then... One day I come back like the next day and somebody had put a big X over it and wrote L-O-O. Really? I'm going, oh, like a bathroom? Somebody's making fun of me? And it's just sort of stuck. Really? Yes. And that's how that's how that occurred. <laughs> so and I, I think I was there before you. I got there in 74. Yeah. On Nebraska Avenue. Well, I came in the fall of 74. Oh, so, well, so, and I used to go downstairs and... Uh, Hang around. Uh, you had a, a basement, basement uh, studio. Yeah, right, all of that. So that, Willard that, would go down there and do his re- that, record show. That's your LOO story. <laughs> I got an email from Alex Pleat, uh, who said he listened to the inaugural podcast in March, and he liked our high-quality recommendations, and he wants to recommend uh, Black Sales which he watched on Stars as a great series. And he also wants to know if we've seen Broadchurch starring uh, Olivia Coleman. So uh, there you go, Alex Pleat. And if you're listening and you get this, and it's uh, arch at houndradio. Arch at houndradio.com. Lou at houndradio.com. If you've got something you like, uh, tell us. Thank you, Alex, for that that inaugural email. (laughs) It's our first email. (laughs) Thank you. So let's see. Uh, on this episode, I thought Longshot stunk, and Detective Pikachu will probably have a big audience oh, yeah. because a lot of fans, and they were just they were jumping out of their chairs at uh, the screening. The hustle I thought was just okay. We like Saturday Night Live with Adam Sandler and Barry, and uh, at the movies, uh, I still think Gloria Bell is the most fun I've had in a long time. Wow, you like that one. Yeah. 
So uh, we both saw that, didn't yeah. we? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Lou, it's always great being with you. Always fun, Arch. Love yeah. doing these with we're you. We're going to try to do this twice a month now. So we're going to go from monthly to bi-monthly. <laughs> How's that strike? I don't know if anybody's buying that or not. But... <laughs> and we're going to have a Memorial Day weekend special yes. coming up in a couple of weeks. So look for that. Yep. Right now, I'm Arch Campbell, and I hope you see something good at the movies. Oh, and I'm Lou Katz. That's what it, that's what it says on my wrist, wristband. <laughs> All right. At the Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz and a cast of thousands comes to you by way of the Katz Podcasting System. Katz, America's first name in Broadway musicals, delicatessens, and podcasting. This is the Katz Podcasting System. This is your announcer reminding you this is your announcer.